before we go ahead with the uh, material that I've prepared. Any comments about the guidance tonight that seem relevant for the group? Anybody get a sense of birth and death? Yeah, Katie. Maybe a little louder, Katie. So you see it more when there's ease than agitation, or what, what do you mean by the relationship? Yeah, thanks. Any other thoughts about the meditation? So you might want to explore with it, explore that, not just in your formal sitting, but even as you're going through the day, just to notice a sense of rebirthing and to Instead of trying to reflect on rebirth philosophically or theoretically, um, theologically, you can just see how moment to moment there's this, things are ceasing, things are arising. And we really start to see how the past is conditioning the present. How if we're in a really bad mood right now, how that affects what's arising in the next moment. There's a direct transference from the bad mood, the irritation. It's directly staining the next moment. So the next moment carries the baggage from the previous moment. So last week I talked about um, thinking about rebirth. We'll spend tonight talking about rebirth. And then next week I thought we'd look... I'll come back to this issue that we started with, I think, week one, which is this relative and mundane, relative and absolute, ultimate view and the seeming paradox between the two. Like, there is cause and effect, and then from the ultimate point of view, but it isn't happening to anybody. And just reflecting on karma from both the relative and the absolute points of view. So that's for next week. But for this week, I want to spend a little bit more time talking about rebirth. And you might remember, for those of you who were here last week, that I mentioned instead of us reflecting on this in terms of what's the truth, is there rebirth? Do people die and then get reborn? To think about it more in terms of what's a skillful attitude? You know, like we could just try out three attitudes very quickly in our minds. You know, one is to assume that there is some sort of rebirthing process that happens, that what we say, do, how we act, that at the end of this physical life, that all of that momentum or whatever that is, that it carries on in some fashion. So you could just notice, like, what does that do for us as we're living our life, that attitude, that belief, or that perspective. Well, you could pick up a nihilistic view, you know, that, you know, things are happening, things are happening, and then you die, and then that's it. And just notice whether that's skillful or what's the effect of that view. Or you could pick up, you know, I don't know, <laughs> and really work with that view. Like, I really, that perspective, I really don't know whether there's some kind of continuity or not. And notice if that's skillful, more skillful, less skillful. What view of rebirth is most skillful for us? This is uh, from this article. I'm pretty sure I left the link up on the website for this. It's another article by Andy Olensky. This one uh, was in Tricycle about four years ago, winter 2008. We are what we do. First, a little background. He does such a good job of summarizing karma. He says, the word karma simply means action and is derived from the verbal root kur, K-R, which means to do, to make. There are three distinct senses of the word here, that, and what renders the concept unique is that all three are inseparable aspects of the same process. We may be used to thinking of, one, the decision to do something as one thing, two, the action carrying it out as another, and three, that we make what we make thereby, or the result of the action as being something else again. But in Buddhist understanding, the three are part of the same whole. 
Intention is the leading edge of karma, directing the activities of body, speech, and mind to act in ways that accumulate, at its trailing edge, karmic formations or dispositions. Action, in other words, is preceded by a sort of doing in which decisions are made and results in the sort of in a sort of making in which a unique personality is constructed. The main idea behind karma is thus the relationship between what we choose to do and what we thereby make of ourselves. So, you know, the short of that is we are, you know, we're experiencing impulses to do, and by actually doing some of those things, thinking some of those thoughts, saying some of those words, doing some of those deeds, we actually become the person who did that. And that becoming that person actually exists now. You know, we are the person who did whatever we did on Monday and are doing on Monday. That's who we are in part. And so we often think of this in terms of sankara, which is, you know, often gets translated as intention. So intention is the active part of karma. That it, intention exists as a disposition, it exists as this surging into action, and it exists as the kind of the imprint of that action. So the full movement from disposition to the about to, to the doing, to the disposition being that impact. So we're constructing things through our actions. I want to read a little bit more from Andy. He says, One constructs constructions. You get the idea, when action is enacted, so to speak, it involves both the activity of building something something, and the product of that activity, something built. An image sometimes used to convey this in the text is of a potter at his wheel. The potter is engaged in the creative process of shaping the clay according to his or her will. And when the pot is cut off the wheel and fired in the kiln, it remains as an enduring artifact of that activity. So our character, our personality, our very self is viewed, in Buddhist thought, as a gallery of ossified karmic relics, the accumulated residue of earlier dynamic processes of intention and action. So that's literally, like in a Buddhist definition, that's literally who we are, not so much a self, but a collection of dispositions that have been, some at least, have been reinforced over and over again. So they have a, you know, they have a real influence that basically affect how we see, how we experience life, the moment. A little later says, he says, Karma is primarily concerned with how we shape ourselves and how we are shaped by ourselves through action. The self is plastic, a malleable clay being molded each moment by intention, just as our scientists are discovering not only how the mind is shaped by the brain, but now, too, how the brain is shaped by the mind. So the Buddha described long ago the interdependent process by which intentions are conditioned by dispositions, and dispositions in turn are conditioned by intentions. The actions that make up the tangible expression of our lives are merely go-between, a go-between, as the world we construct is a mere offshoot of who we are ever re-becoming. <laughs> so one last paragraph here at the end of this article. So karma is not something outside of ourselves that happens to us, as we in the West are so used to thinking of everything being, but is something far more intimate and even, although I hesitate to use the word, personal, as the Buddha puts it, Beings are owners of their actions, heirs of their actions. They originate from their actions, are bound to their actions, have their actions as their refuge. It is action that distinguishes beings as inferior or superior. So however we might judge ourselves or judge other people, other beings, what we're really judging is this collection of actions, the residue of what has come before that's really what we're seeing, that's really what we are, if we're going to define it in any way. So that that image of um, somebody who's making something, like a potter who's making something, you see how that evokes, how that might, you know, whether it's 
absolutely true. You see how it evokes something very skillful, like, oh, if I'm making something here, you know, maybe I should pay attention to what's being made, because it's going to be around for a while. So let me take a close look at what's being made. What kind of heart are we shaping right now by the attitudes, by the thoughts, by our actions? What kind of heart, what kind of mind is being sort of collected and formed and is ossifying, you know, it's getting established, becoming more the tendency of the mind. And it's, I think it's appropriate to be a little frightened by this. <laughs> you know, just enough, just frightened enough to want to pay attention. And then when we get too frightened by this, we want to remember it's all very impersonal. Like, it's happening, but... The way that it's happening is also very impersonal. That lightens the heart a little bit, which allows us to be more skillfully aware of it. So it's this amazing balancing act. If we don't take it personally enough, we don't bother to look. We don't bother to notice what we're setting in motion. If we get too concerned about what we're setting in motion, we're also setting in motion fear. (laughs) You know, the fear of being too concerned about what we're setting in motion how inadequate our life is, how bad we are, or imperfect we are. This is in that collection. I'm going to read a number of discourses tonight. Uh, And feel free to interrupt me if you have questions about any of these. And this is from that um, Karma, a study guide prepared by Ajahn uh, Tanisaro. And it has, I don't know, 40 or so, maybe even more, excerpts from the discourses of the Buddha. And here's one about right view. The Buddha says, And how is right view the forerunner? One discerns wrong view as wrong view, and right view as right view. This is one's this is one's right view. And what is wrong view? There is nothing given, nothing offered, nothing sacrificed. So this the Buddha is describing what wrong view is. There's nothing given, nothing offered, nothing sacrificed. There's no fruit or result of good or bad actions. There's no this world, no next world, no mother, no father, no spontaneously reborn beings, no priests or or contemplatives who, fearing rightly and practicing rightly, proclaim this world and the next after having directly known and realized it for themselves. This is wrong view. Now, this is kind of interesting, I think, and um, maybe as close to dogma as you get in Buddhism and it's it's code I mean these things all have sort of meanings that may not be obvious so there is nothing given nothing offered nothing sacrificed so what the Buddha means by this is when somebody gives something or when somebody offers something or when somebody lets go of something sacrifices something that it isn't It isn't a karmic act. There aren't consequences for that. Thinking that is what the Buddha defines as wrong view. That acts of giving, um, intentional giving, aren't karmic, aren't setting something in motion, aren't impactful. And he goes on, he says, there's no fruit or result of good or bad actions. So he's just saying that in a more specific way. There is no this world, no next world, no mother, no father. And, you know, just this idea of this death to our parents, that's like neglecting that or not thinking that's true, that we don't. Even if your parents weren't that good, in Buddhist teachings, you know, this precious life is a precious thing. Something to be profoundly grateful for because... There's this potential to have insight, to wake up. And, you know, some of you are parents, you know, it's not easy being a parent. It's not easy giving birth. It's not easy raising a child. (coughs) Excuse me. And so, this obligation, this karmic obligation to our parents, to dismiss that, to be unaware of that, is called wrong view, according to the Buddha. And then he's saying there's no this world, no next world. And then later he says, 
wise people fearing rightly, practicing rightly, and pro- proclaim this world the next after having directly known and realized it for themselves. He's talking about this insight that the Buddha himself had, according to the text, you know, that night under the Bodhi tree, the night of the Buddha's deep insight. He evidently, as it said, you know, he came to understand not only his past lives, a life living in this such and such a place, then being reborn in another place, but he also developed a concentration and awareness where he saw that among many, many, many beings, any beings he put his mind to, he saw how that mind stream also taking rebirth and then dying and then taking rebirth and how that was all unfolding lawfully. So this, I'm assuming for all of us, we're just going to, you know, we're hearing it. It isn't something we directly experience. But what the Buddha is saying here is, uh, when you hear about the Buddha saying that he experienced or hear about other people saying they experienced it, and then saying that ain't true, that's considered wrong view in a Buddhist sense. So this is a little bit dogmatic. Like the Buddha is saying you have to keep open to the idea that people have seen, people have come to understand the continuity of the mind from one life to the next. And this is a debate even in today's Buddhist circles. There's there's some um, real arguments, real philosophical practice arguments, discussions around this point, whether this is really something you need to stay open to or not. My, my thought is, well, why not stay open to it? Why not stay open to the fact that, or to the possibility that people have seen this, that they've really seen directly this continuity, and that the quality of our life, or the quality, the sort of sum of our intentions in that life, has an effect, and that effect is then is expressed in the next life. And then the sort of the sum total of the intentions that get acted out in that life have an effect, which then have an impact on what comes next. Because the reason that makes sense to stay open to, to me is, well, that's exactly what I observe in this life. The sort of bundle of intentions that got activated today, Monday, and got acted out today, they're affecting what how I am now and how I'll be tomorrow. So why wouldn't that be a possibility? So he defines wrong view and then he says, and what is right view? Right view, I tell you, is of two sorts. There is right view with fermentation, siding with merit, resulting in acquisitions of becoming and there is noble right view without fermentations, transcendent, a factor of the path. Right? So the Buddha is saying there's two kinds of right view. There's right view, that means there's a kind of wisdom that understands how to set in motion good things. And this is what we're going to talk about tonight. So from a relative perspective, being a human being that wants good things to happen for me, there's a right view, there's a way of understanding, well, how do you set in motion right good things? like being generous, for example. And then he's saying, but there's also a right view that understands how not to create any more karma. So, right view can do two things. In a mundane sense, right view can create good karma, actions that lead to good results. And then, in a super mundane way, right view is a way of viewing that isn't creating any karma, good or bad. And this is the this is the uh, view that leads to nibbana or to the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion. And in, in Theravada Buddhism, especially, it's emphasized, you know, when a fully awakened person eventually dies, you know, you can be awake like the Buddha had his insight and he taught for 45 years or so. But then when he died, the idea is, uh, there isn't any neurotic intentions in that mind stream to lead to another rebirth. So with the cessation of that physical existence, there is no more. And this is like, scares us because we're all invested in a self-view and it sounds like annihilation. 
But when the Buddha would, you know, was asked, well, what happens to a Buddha after you die, you know? And the person would say, you know, does he continue? The Buddha would be silent. And so, well, does he cease? The Buddha would be silent. And he said, well, you, does he neither cease nor not, not cease? And the Buddha wouldn't answer because the questioning depends, is sort of based on a presumption about who or what the Buddha is now that's incorrect. The person is assuming the Buddha is a something that, in fact, he's not. So it doesn't make sense. And then finally, at another question and answer session, uh, the Buddha doesn't answer the person who's talking, but in talking to, I think, Ananda later, he gives the example. I can't remember exactly the exact circumstance. It might have been to Ananda. It might not have been. But anyway, he gives the example of a fire, which I think is a really useful fire. He says, you've got a fire, you know, and as long as you keep putting fuel on that fire, it's burning. But what happens if you stop putting fuel on that fire? Well, it will cease. And then he says to the person, well, where did it go? Where did that fire go? You know, that was burning. And the person says, well, that question doesn't really make sense. And the Buddha says, well, just so. In the same way, asking what happens to a fully awake, awakened person at the time of death, it doesn't make sense. In the same way, asking where that fire went doesn't make sense. What happened is there was no more fuel. And so what's the fuel? Well, greed, anger, and delusion is the fuel for the continuation of being, what we call, you know, being. And when that ceases, when those tendencies of the mind are ceased, they're cut off, no longer to arise, there is nothing that can trigger greed, aversion, or delusion in the mind, then when that momentum of that life, that life stream, that physical life ceases, there's nothing in the mind stream, there's no fuel left. Because fuel, you know, in a Buddhist sense, would be ignorance, misperception, taking things personally. So last week, uh, I read from another article of Andy's and about... You know, the whole attitude, and again, thinking of this not in terms of what's absolutely true, but thinking about it in terms of what's skillful, then one possible skillful attitude to have about rebirth is this uh, quality of dana, or generosity, of freely receiving and freely giving. So we have this sense that this moment is really skillful for me in this moment to freely receive what's arising for me as a gift from the past. You know, whether you want to think about past lives or just the past moment. And in a way, in a Buddhist sense, it doesn't really make sense to say that that person, like let's say there was a past life. In a Buddhist sense, it, it doesn't make sense to say that that was us. So, even if there's rebirth, it doesn't mean that that was me. It just means that this moment is the recipient of something from the past. That's pretty hard to deny. And then the question is, well, what's the skillful relationship for whatever's arising from the past right now? And like we did in the guided meditation, you know, when we breathe in, we say, yes. Well, you might find that that's a really skillful relationship because we could lament not being richer, not being more beautiful, not being more healthy, not you know, any number of factors that we could imagine would make our life better. But lamenting that is that scuffle. You know, complaining about the hand we were dealt, is that actually scuffle? Doesn't mean, do we, you know, do we have a right? You could do it. Anybody can complain about the hand they were dealt. But is it skillful to do that? And maybe what's skillful is with gratitude, because, you know, Probably, everybody here, it could be worse. So we can be grateful. We can be grateful for so many things, like the chant we did tonight at the beginning of the set. There's many things of those highest blessings, highest protections, that we have or are experiencing in our lives. I mean, right now we have good friendship. Being together in a situation like this, this is about as wholesome as it gets. A warm room with a lot of friendly, wise people talking about how to be skillful. I mean, it's pretty nice to be in this sort of setting. 
So, uh, and I brought up last week, in part from reading from uh, one of Andy's other articles, Whose Life Is This Anyway?, from his book on Limiting Mind, Andy Olensky's book, where he talks about, it's really an invitation to have this friendly relationship where we're receiving this moment as an act of gratitude, grateful that we have this moment to receive, and then our relationship to this moment, what we add, it's like a way of taking responsibility for what we're sending in motion. Somebody is going to receive whatever we're adding to this moment, however we're relating to it, whatever intentions are being watered, somebody is going to receive this. The seeds that we're planting right now. So if we're kind of investing in greed or investing in irritation, somebody is going to be the recipient. You know, conventionally we, conventionally speaking, we say, yeah, I'm going to be the recipient. But that I, five minutes from now or tomorrow morning or whenever, it's not really the same I. Because in a Buddhist sense, from a mindfulness perspective, the sense of I is being arising, being established in each moment. Of course, the sense of I seems similar than, than to the previous sense of I, but actually it's different. You're not the person who woke up some Tuesday when you were 19, some how many decades ago. There may be some, you know, we can think of some relationship between that actual moment of some being living and this moment of this being living. There is some obvious relationship, but it isn't correct to say that was me in a, in a deeper sense, right? Just in the same way, you know, biologists would tell us all of our cells are recycled, what is it, every seven years or something like that? So everything changes. We're not really the same person. It's an evolving thing, an evolving process. So a little bit more from that article um, that I read from last week, but a, a different paragraph. The worldview emerging from this perspective on rebirth involves a universal, a universe based on dana, on generosity. We are the recipients of immeasurable generosity when we are given life, consciousness, a world, and the company of other beings. We are participants in the cycle of giving when we willfully, willingly or not, give up and give back on our deathbed all that we have received. The quality with which all this is done is the only thing upon which we have any influence. The quality of each moment of awareness we experience is where our world unfolds, where we construct our character, where ourselves have any semblance of real existence. So you can imagine, like, wouldn't it be skillful at the time of death to have that attitude of offering, for better or worse, but to freely give? It's going to be taken anyway. Why not freely give away the life? Why not naturally be regretful for any imperfections about that handoff, what we're passing on, and, and naturally being appreciative of whatever good that we're passing on, hard-learned hard lessons, whatever that might be for us. And it's different than that sort of stingy, competitive, doggy-dog attitude. I, the reason I left that um, cartoon out again if you didn't read it last week from Kelvin and Hobbes, I put it on the table. You can read it on the way out. But I'm just reading in case you didn't look at it. So most of you probably know Kelvin and Hobbes, this little boy and his stuffed tiger who has a real existence, presumably through his imagination. So he's talking. They're sledding down a big hill, and he's talking to stuffed tiger Hobbes. I've been good all day so far. And then his stuffed tiger says to him, Christmas is getting near, huh? You got it. I've been wondering though, is it really, is it truly being good? Is it truly being good if the only reason I behave well is so I can get more loot at Christmas? I mean really, all I'm doing is saying I can be bribed. Is that good enough? Or do I have to be good in my heart and spirit? In other words, do I have to be, do I really have to be good? Or do I just have to act good? At this point, they've crashed and are flying through the air. 
and landing in the snow. And Hobbes responds, I suppose in your case, Santa will have to take what he can get. And then Kelvin, who's always kind of scheming, okay, so exactly how good do you think I have to act? Really good or just pretty good? And that's kind of how, you know, how we move through life. Like, what can I get away with? Even in our relationships, the how nice do I have to be to keep the relation harmonious, the relationship harmonious? What can I get away with? Oh, I've been a bit of a jerk. I better, you know, pull it together and go buy a box of chocolates or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. Say some sweet words. And again, just in light of, well, what, what actually is skillful? And what would that look like if we took this attitude of, you know, dana, this world, living this world of dana, really receiving and really giving, like, what can we add to this soup? You know, whether it's the soup of this individual mind stream, however you might imagine it. I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago about, you know, the idea, well, maybe it isn't the specific stream of, of mind, you know. But maybe it's more like an archetypal collection. And so we're adding to the soup, and then out of the soup, the next round of individuals are reborn. But one way or another, we're affecting the collective soup. And again, we don't have to imagine lifetime to lifetime to even get a sense that this might be true, because we see it in community and families that we're adding. We are, in fact, adding to the collective soup. And then we're coming out of that soup. We're affected by that soup. Like the culture in this country right now. Who isn't affected by the soup? You know, even if we try to sort of, you know, maintain some sanity in terms of how much we read and how much we listen, still we're affected by what's going on. So we said I wanted to share some of the discourses tonight. Um... And, you know, the Buddha rejected over and over again simplistic views of karma. So instead of like, because that's what Calvin would want to do. He'd want to game the system. Okay, there's karma. Now, how do I make it work for me? And he'd want some sort of simplistic view. So I just want to share some of the simplistic views that the Buddha rejected. So in one, and this is all in that collection of discourses that Ajahn uh, Tanisaro put together for us or for everyone. So, uh, one person is saying that there are some other teachers who teach this doctrine that whatever an individual feels, pleasure, pain, neither pleasure nor pain, is entirely caused by what has been done before. Now, what does the Venerable Gotama say to that? Gotama was his family name, the Buddhist family name. Sometimes he was referred to by that name. And the Buddha says, well, there are cases where some feelings arise based on bile, based on phlegm. So he's, this is sort of the medical system at the time of the Buddha. You know, there are a lot of reasons for things to arise. Karma is not the previous sort of intentional actions of some mind, previous mind, may be one of the causes. But there are a lot of other reasons why things happen. So... To say, you know, that simplistic thing that whatever I feel, whatever I'm experiencing is entirely caused by what I did in the past is too simplistic. Because there are many causes, not just karmic causes. With the mind stream, that sort of continuity of mind, what was done in the past, skillful or unskillful, isn't the only thing at play. There are many causes and conditions. We see that all the time. And, you know, this, is, this helps us understand, like, why some people are getting slammed by a storm right now. What did they do in the past? Well, they probably did something to deserve it, you know. They wasted water. This is water's revenge. You know, we can tell these kind of crazy stories to sort of explain things to ourselves, to make things make sense, but it's just too simplistic. Another time... Uh, number 25 in that series of discourses. So the Buddha is refuting another view that goes like this. All those who kill living beings experience pain and distress in the here and now. 
All those who take what is not given, who engage in illicit sex, who tell lies, um, experience pain and distress here and now. And the Buddha rejects this. He says, well, that's just not the case. And then he gives some examples, like, suppose you see somebody who's getting a lot of praise and given a lot of wealth from the king. And you check it out, you talk to the person, like, why, why are you being treated in such a great way? Why are you getting so many prizes? He says, well, I snuck behind the enemy lines and I killed some of the king's ministers, the king from the other country's ministers, you know, and I made it back and the king here is rewarding me for my actions. You know, this is what we do. We send our troops overseas, they kill the enemy, they get a tinker tape parade, you know, and uh, some benefits, <laughs> less and less it seems, but that's, you know, it's, it's sort of the same thing, but it's still killing. So, same with cheating, same with lying. There are cases where lying gets reinforced. Cheating gets reinforced. Killing gets reinforced. So this thought, this idea that, oh, Johnny did something bad, he should get his just desserts right now. Well, not always. We can't necessarily see. The Buddha says, like I, I read last week, you know, no matter where you hide, you can't, the mind can't hide from evil, evil deeds. They will arise. The effect will arise somewhere in some mind that's involved in some kind of continuity from the mind that intentionally did something unskillful, something that involved a contracted heart, will have its effect. No way to hide from that. But when and how that happens is very much at play. And that's what the Buddha is saying. In fact, in another discourse, 26, he says, there are four kinds of persons to be found in the world, right? One who breaks the precepts and is reborn in a bad destination like hell, like somebody kills, and they end up in a really bad situation in their next life, or somebody who kills and is reborn in a really good situation, or somebody that doesn't kill, that follows the precepts, is kind, etc., and gets reborn in hell, and somebody who's kind and gets reborn in a really good place. So that you can't tell even from one life to the next. And there are examples of this, like uh, the Buddhist chief disciple, Moggallana, was... For I don't know how many lifetimes, four lifetimes, evidently, the uh, god of death, you know, in Buddhist cosmology, like the bad guy, the devil. Because being cycled through all sorts of different places, and we don't know what sort of disposition is going to arise. We might have had a really good life, done a lot of good work, but they are just by the sort of causes and conditions at the time of death, or for whatever reason, what brings the mind into the next life is a really unwholesome, unskillful cause. And so, that life, you know, that mind is drawn to a life with a lot of pain, a lot of difficulty. So, this is, again, just another example how any sort of simplistic wanting to simplify karma, all we know is that Intentional actions seem to have consequences. Seem that way because people we respect, like the Buddha, says it. And then in our own experience, we can directly see this to some degree. We can observe cause and effect. We see it in ourselves. We see it in others. I mean, this is, this is like the great, uh, well of the entertainment industry. They keep tapping into cause and effect. I mean, this is Greek from everything from Greek tragedies to, you know, I'm going to eventually watch the latest episode of Upstairs, Downstairs, um, PBS, you know, Masterpiece Theater. All of these shows are just morality plays, cause and effect. You know, good people getting good results, bad people getting bad results. We like this. We tell stories about this all the time to each other. Sometimes it's gossip. Sometimes it's more highbrow, you know, and it makes it to the BBC and they make a production out of it. But it's all about cause and effect and about how things play out in unexpected ways, you know, and we like things to be tied up so that people who 
in one particular story, eventually they get their just desserts and the good people end up happily ever after in some fashion. And it always strikes us as not quite right that good people end up with just bad results, you know. Sort of leaves the heart a little uneasy because as living beings, you know, we want there to be some lawfulness. And the trouble with karma, that the way it actually works is, it's very complicated. And I think I mentioned, trying to understand it will make us crazy. Trying to understand it in a very specific way will drive us crazy. Another time, you know, just another sort of rejection, the Buddha rejecting sort of simplistic views, uh, there were... Um, I don't know if he was visiting this place or someone was referring to this place where at the time of death the community would gather and together they'd dress a certain way and they'd do a certain ritual and they'd chant a certain way and the idea is that through the power of their good wish or their intention they would send that spirit to a particular place and the Buddha gives the example well, if you take a really heavy rock and you drop it in the middle of the lake What's it going to do? And the person says, well, it will sink to the bottom of the lake. He says, well, if you gathered a bunch of people and you did whatever ritual you did or dressed any particular way you want to dress, chanted whatever you want to chant, is there any way you could get that rock to come up to sort of send it where you wanted to send? The guy goes, no. And then he gives the example of a jar of ghee. You know, you take that jar of ghee and you drop that in the middle of the lake and it falls to the bottom and let's say breaks. That ghee is going to float. There's any way that you could say, no, that ghee should go to hell, stay at the bottom of the lake. And the person says, no. And the Buddha says, just so. You know, that where people go at the time of death, where that, you know, that sort of onward motion of that mind stream, one mind moment conditioning, the next mind moment conditioning, the next moment, that is its own, has its own sort of momentum, its own causes and conditions course affected by other causes and conditions but there's nothing my good wishes for it is relatively unimportant to that unfolding it may modify the unfolding in some way but that has its own momentum its own trajectory its own lawfulness the way to change that is in the, that mind strain itself and this is really the point of uh, impact, you know, how we actually change things. And this is, uh, uh, this discourse is also in here. This is number 27, the famous simile that the Buddha used. You've probably heard it a number of times already. I'll just read it, these several paragraphs. Practitioners, for anyone who says in whatever way a person makes karma, karma, that it, that is how that is how it is experienced. There is no living of the holy life. There is no opportunity for the right ending of stress. Right? So, if you believe, again, the Buddha is rejecting a simplistic view. If you believe that if you hit somebody this hard, then you're going to get hit this hard. And there's no way around that. Then what would be the point of a spiritual life? Because whatever was set in motion, there's no way to modify that. Like another time, this is common actually, I don't know if it was part of the Jain teaching, Jainism, but it was a common belief that, you know, if you kill, you're screwed. You know, you're going to go to hell. Or if you lie, if you get involved in illicit sex, you know, it's like tit for tat. No way around that. And the Buddha said, well, what would be the point of practice? You know, if you had that view... All you would do is you believe you're screwed, and that belief that you're screwed, that there's no way to avoid the negative karma coming your way, that itself would be very negative karma. That belief, let alone whether you're actually going to get some direct tit-for-tat, just thinking you are would be its own hell. And so the Buddha gives a simile. There's a case where a trifling evil deed done by a certain individual takes him to hell. That's something really small, stealing a soda from a 7-Eleven. 
Does it 7 Eleven in the Midwest? <laughs> People know 7 Eleven? <laughs> There's a case where the very same sort of trifling deed done by another individual is experienced in the here and now, and for the most part, barely appears for a moment. Now, a trifling evil deed done by what sort of individual takes him or her to hell? There is a case where a certain individual is undeveloped in contemplating the body, not, not connected at the present moment, undeveloped in virtue, undeve undeveloped in mind, unde undeveloped in wisdom, restricted, small-hearted, dwelling with suffering. A trifling evil deed by, done by this sort of in individual takes him or her to hell. And you can, you know, we see that even in life, in, in our lives, where somebody who just doesn't have a lot of skill, constantly bumping up against negative results from their unskillful actions. You know, one little thing can lead to bad results. You know, the example of, you know, somebody just on the edge and using drugs and alcohol to manage the yucky feelings they have living on the edge. And sure enough, being a little drunk has a car accident and gets caught, you know, and ends up in prison. And being in prison gets all these other negative influences. And with those negative influences, you can just see how something relatively small can have really negative effects for people. And then the Buddha says, now, a trifling evil deed done by what sort of individual is experienced in the here and now, and for the most part, barely appears for a moment. There is the case where a certain individual is developed in contemplating the body, developed in virtue, developed in mind, developed in discernment, unrestricted, large-hearted, dwelling with the unlimited. A trifling evil deed done by this sort of individual is experienced in the here and now, and for the most part, barely appears for a moment. And then he gives a simile. Suppose that a person were to drop a salt crystal into a, large, a small amount of water in a cup. What do you think? Would, that, would the water in the cup become salty because of the salt crystal and unfit to drink? Yes, they answer. Right. So now the Buddha says, well, suppose that a person were to drop a salt crystal into a big river. What do you think? Would that water in the river become salty because of the salt crystal and unfit to drink? No, sir. So in the same way, the Buddha says, there is the case where a trifling evil deed done by one individual takes one to hell, and there's the case where the same sort of trifling deed done by another excuse me, individual experienced in the here and now, for the most part, barely appears for a moment. And so this is, uh, maybe I'll end here so we have a little time for other people to share so this is how we modify the stream of karma. And really, you can just imagine that to the nth degree. As we're living our life, if I have a relatively narrow mind, restricted mind, angry mind, greedy mind, then every negative, every difficult circumstance that arises in my life will be amplified by my negativity, my restricted, constricted view of things. And the results are going to be relatively big. If I'm in a really expansive place, I have a lot of love, a lot of resilience, a lot of patience, a lot of perspective. I really see how everybody's doing the best they can given their causes and conditions in their lives. Then when somebody comes and insults me or rear-ends rear me or you know, I get stopped by a police officer who's, you know, has a um, attachment to authority or something like that. But it doesn't end up becoming a big problem because with that relative spaciousness of my mind, that wisdom in the mind, it knows how to remain skillful even with these difficult experiences arising. So you can think about, you know, your own examples of that. And none of us knows what's around the corner in terms of life situations, sort of events that are going to trigger dispositions. All we know is that when those things get triggered, when my defensiveness gets triggered, when my neediness gets triggered, when my sorrow gets triggered, 
when my fear gets triggered. All I know is that when my mind is more expansive, there's more love, more compassion, more wisdom, more joy, more equanimity, then the effects of those negative dispositions that have been triggered will be relatively small. They won't affect my behavior as much as when my mind is already constricted, already in negative states. Because then it will be cumulative. It will be sort of just the fuel that that fire needs. You know, when we're already angry and then somebody does something stupid to us and insults us or runs into us or takes something that's ours, well, that's like, oh, I knew I was angry. I knew I was right to be angry at the world. Because look at this stupid guy. And we just, you know, we're just ready to explode. We've got more fuel. So any thoughts come to mind? Questions or thoughts from your own practice you'd like to share with the group? Yeah, Charlie. Yeah. Well, and that's such a important point for all of us. It's probably everybody relates to what you said, Charlie. And I think that because we can be unskillful avoiding foolish people and we can be unskillful uh, sort of engaging and feeling responsible for their suffering in ways too. And the only way we'll know is by looking at our intention. And, and what are we neglecting? Like a lot of times healers or people who are helping others a lot in their lives professionally and, and even just outside of their work lives, it's, uh, they're, they're somehow ignoring their own needs. So thinking that they don't matter as much as this other person. So that's one thing that we can do. Another is feeling personally responsible for helping people in a way that's not actually right. It's like we're not always personally responsible for helping everybody. That doesn't mean it's wrong to help people, but it's wrong to feel that we have to. So the idea is we, we want to be naturally moved. It's the right thing to do in this moment. But that, that uh, discernment that this is the right thing to do in this moment requires that the mind be free of expectations, <clears throat> free of attachment, so that it's really going to respond nimbly in this moment. Because in any moment, we don't know who really should be taken care of. Sometimes we should go home and go to bed. Sometimes we should respond to the person who's in front of us. And we don't know unless we're mindful in that moment. It's not like there's a roadmap that tells us what to do. We have to actually be there in the moment to know what needs to be done. And we have to be willing to let go of other people's needs when this need is what's relevant, is what's, in a sense, getting one's attention. Oh, I can't be helpful anymore. I'm exhausted. You know, I'm losing my cool. And this is often the case is people get sick before they stop, before they sort of rebalance their lives. They push too much. They give too much. Because they're not listening to themselves. They're thinking that I have to take care of these people. But we're a person too. And this is a misunderstanding of, of compassion and even the teachings on not self. Because the idea is for us to respond nimbly for whatever gets the attention. Not to have expectations. But I think it's hard. Yeah, Craig. Somehow I'm important in the relationship. I'm not saying 
No, no, I think that's exactly right. And it's, I think it's a, a useful way to say it that's different than how I just said it. Like that nimbleness where we're not doing it, it's really nature doing it. We're kind of creating the heart that can respond, but it's not expecting anything back. And I think that's what yeah, you were saying. It's important for me to do what I can, but what the other person does with that is just my business. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Time for maybe one or two more people. Anybody else? Uh, Mesky. <coughs> A little louder. Oh. I thought it was going to be over the weekend that Mark uh, was more about my life. And I started to have the big highlights thinking, but today I should work with you. And in the movie, there's a line that we see over and over that it says, um, Our lives are not our own. So um, then after the movie, it just kind of physics, you know, they, as they talk about matter and antimatter and uh, black holes and then the Big Bang expansion and contraction, you know, there's this idea that the activity, what we call, you know, material matter, is sort of a one half of the equation. And so, you know, in terms of our part in that, you know, it is this expressive part that depends on unity being split apart. But when it comes together, then, you know, it's the substantive nature of this is, depends on the separation, the agitation of that separation. And when things come together, then, I, you know, it's not really right to say nothing because from this, from being this perspective, nothing is scary. But that's just because of this perspective that we have, you know. So we don't really know what uh, the unconditioned is. And I think when when the mind starts intuiting the unconditioned in practice, you know, then it's less scary. It doesn't mean it can be grasped, like you can't describe it, or but it, it isn't a problem. It isn't seen as a problem. It's only a problem because there's a sense of a somebody who's going to lose itself. And that doesn't seem like a good deal. <laughs> no. no, that can't be the answer. But, you know, I don't know, you know, you look at the Christian tradition, for example, and other traditions, they're all trying to do the same thing. Like, how do you talk about that? Well, they talk about, you know, being one with God. You know, rejoining God in heaven. So that they're trying to kind of give the same idea that you've got to leave something behind. You know, so they you dress it up, you make it look good. But the, in the end, it's still an unknown. You know, you really got to let go of the known in order to experience the unknown. There's no way to take the known with you. And that's, you know, that's true in Buddhism. And so that's how it's described or talked about in Theravada Buddhism. That this sort of, with the cessation. But, you know, it's not easy to know what to do with that. And I think it's just useful to keep an open mind, you know, Know that we don't know. And know that we're done. Smile for. 
So take a breath together, let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.